Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Right now, we are broadcasting live from the Commonwealth Financial Network's annual national conference of advisors from the Marriott in Austin, Texas. And, Pim, we've been talking about the dollar revival. The flip story to that is the uh, significant decline in emerging market currencies. And to talk about that, let's bring in Damian Sass, our chief emerging market credit strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Damian, I'm looking right now at the biggest one-day drop in the MSCI EM currency index since early October and more than a month. Is this all just the dollar or is there something else going on with a rethink of investing in the developing world? Yeah, Lisa, no, I think there is a little bit of something else going on here. I mean, if you just look back at 2018, 2018 was a test of what's called the external durability of global economies. And I think the way things are shaping up here, you know, heading into year end for 2019 is you know, with, with, with a lot of short-term liquidity metrics kind of rolling over, and by that I'm talking about U.S. liquidity metrics, you know, um, you know, uh, OIS to, to LIBOR and, and TED spreads and all of this, I think we're, we, we're maybe setting up to see a, a test of sort of the structural fiber of financial markets. And I fear the credit markets, as we get into the new year, may very well be tested for the first time in a post-GFC, more tightly regulated, Hold on a second. So great financial, uh, great financial crisis. Uh, Hold on a second. This what you're saying is really important, and, and I want you to sort of articulate this. You're concerned about the sustainability of current credit markets, given some of the stress metrics that you're seeing build right now. Is that correct? That's correct. I think the Fed unwind is crowding out competing asset classes. Damien Sassauer, what is going on in Mexico? And we see a stock market that is lower by about 2% right now. And the new president, AMLO, this is not reassuring, at least to investors. What's happening? Yeah, you know, I mean, we're going to see a lot of credit differentiation here, I think, as we, as we get into the end of the year. I mean, you know, look, Trump has gone some way toward unifying forces against the dollar and against the U.S., from China to Russia to France and Germany, you name it. But I think we're going to see foreign governments pay a lot more attention to currency denomination. And the peso has been, you know, it's, it's the most liquid emerging market currency out there. And I think people are going to use that either as a hedge vehicle or a way of speculating against the dollar. So, I mean, you know, there's a little bit of that going on. And I think, you know, Mexican equities and a lot of other Mexican assets are just really kind of, um, you know, a byproduct of that. But, you know, just kind of taking that, that, that forward a little bit, you know, I think, I think the real themes as we get into the new year in emerging markets, Pim, you know, China's struggling to find a way to fix its slow growth problem. And they're going to be hard-pressed to find one that doesn't involve taking on additional leverage. Um, you know, if you just look to Russia, now that the midterms are behind us, we have new sanctions that are expected soon. And this could mean registered, regulated U.S. funds are not able to participate in new Russian sovereign auctions. That could be a major hit to them. And then the other big theme I think that we're looking at is Brazil, right? I mean, Brazil, you know, everything is all rosy in Brazil, but now the, comp- the country needs to deliver. And Bolsonaro has an uphill battle if they, pa- if they plan on passing hugely unpopular pension reform and, and other structural agenda. Well, 
Damien, I want to go back to something that you were talking about with respect to the stress that seems to be emerging in credit markets, that basically uh, the Fed is withdrawing liquidity from markets and you're starting to see investors go back to treasuries and withdraw money from emerging markets. I'm just wondering how much further you think this could go, because I'm looking right now at the biggest uh, dollar-denominated emerging markets uh, debt ETF, and it's down 6.5% year-to-date. I mean, this hasn't been a good year for it at all. Are we looking at much deeper losses than that even potentially next year? Well, I mean, if you just look back at the modern era of, of, of emerging market debt, and I'm talking post-global financial crisis, it, you know, this is the first environment we've ever seen where, you know, where duration, I'm talking losses that are due to rising U.S. yields are really dominating, you know, uh, you know any other factor that might generate, you know, that might, that, that might impact the M returns. And the other big factor, as we know, is spread. We have we've come, come through some, the taper tantrum, a number of episodes, November elections, you name it, where spreads have blown out quite considerably in the EM debt, and we've not seen that this time around. And that is a real risk. And I think the reason that spreads have kind of held their own here has a lot to do with the fact that other spread asset classes here in the U.S., specifically high yield, have not really witnessed the same sort of, you know, um, hit that emerging markets have, you know. So, so I, think, I think you make a very good point. I think there's a real risk here that, not so much that the Fed isn't doing its job, but it's going to be very, very difficult for it to navigate an environment where, you know, dollars are being squeezed out of the system. Damien, are there many professionals who are betting on a recovery in EM debt and equity and have not seen that recovery and now are faced with issues about redemptions or just past performances, not prologue? Well, I mean, yes, and, and there's, there's certainly going to be pockets of that, but you make a really, you're hitting on a very, a very uh, important nerve here, Pim. As we get into the new year, you know, everything resets, right? And, I, I mean, I've been crunching the numbers here, and I don't see how you can have exposure to some of these very high beta, high risk, um, you know, EM themes like Turkey and Argentina, you know, because if we go into a risk-on environment, you know, at some point next year, those credits are going to, you know, they're going to outperform significantly just given the embedded beta that are in them. So, you know, you just can't afford not to own them, <laughs> you know. And, I, and I, despite the weaker fundamentals, the higher idiosyncratic risk, I really can see buyers emerging over the next few weeks into year-end, you know, before conditions turn a liquid into the holidays. So uh, just to follow on that theme, right now, at least looking at retail funds, we really haven't seen outflows. Are we seeing outflows from other areas or not yet? We have. We've definitely seen active funds take their share of outflows. A lot of that's already kind of transpired. I think it's safe to say that you're going to see some rebalancing, as you do most years, you know, as you kind of you know, get through the 31st into, the, into January. I mean, what happens is it's usually a bit of a lag because the redemptions start to come through, at least the redemption orders come through now. You know, they usually have a month or two before they have to meet those redemptions, and then we're talking Feb 1. So really what you're looking at, and this is, you know, just talking about credit conditions, Lisa, which you and I are just kind of, you know, harping on here, as we emerge from the holiday, you know, sort of, you know, Christmas holiday, how U.S. credit markets react to that and whether they normalize or they remain tight is going to be absolutely critical to performance in 2019. Thanks very much for sharing your time with us and your expertise. Damien Sassauer, Bloomberg Intelligence, knows everything about emerging markets and emerging market credit. And indeed, just taking a look at the iShares MSCI Emerging Market ETF, it is down more than 20% since the beginning of the year. 
And it's time to talk about fees. You know, Lisa, whenever we talk about exchange-traded funds, we speak about why they are popular. And, of course, one of the big reasons has to do with their low-cost fee structure, specifically when it comes to big index funds, let's say those that are offered by Vanguard. So I want to know about in the advisor space what is happening to fees. Greg Gore is the Senior Vice President of Wealth Management for Commonwealth Financial Network. He is based in Boston, as many of those people at Commonwealth are, and he joins us here in Austin, Texas. Greg, it's a pleasure to have you here with us. Tell us the latest when it comes to the trend in fee structure and how it's working for the advisor community. Yeah, thanks for having us, Tim. Um, so there, you know, we're in the midst of probably a 10 or 15 year secular trend away from commission business. Um, and as advisors have, you know, migrated um, away from commissions and into fees, uh, the entire industry uh, is moving toward lower cost, greater transparency. Uh, it's great stuff for clients. You know, they're seeing expense ratios go down. In many cases, they're seeing the total overall fees. They're paying their advisors go down. Um, so clients are big winners here. And, you know, it, it, it seems like as this trend progresses, um, you know, commission business will continue to erode and we may eventually get to a point where the vast majority of advisors are fee-based. So you said that most advisors or most clients anyway are going to be lower, paying lower fees. That means that the advisors are earning less. Do you expect some to go out of business as a result? It, it's interesting in that, you know, client fees, they're or there's different components to it, right? So we started this with the exchange-traded funds, which certainly you know carry uh, you know far lower expense ratios than your typical actively managed mutual funds. So a lot of advisors um, have migrated clients from higher-cost expense ratio products to exchange-traded funds. Um, you know, maintain their fee structure or only modestly adjusted it down, um, and clients ultimately may still benefit there. And then you've also seen. Some advisors reduce their asset management fee, um, but charge a separate financial planning fee. So sort of an unbundling of the advisory fee, if you will. Um, we, we definitely see a trend toward that as well. What is the breakdown, if there is one, based on demographics? In other words, older customers, younger customers, because many younger customers, they've never lived in a world where commissions were the basic way in which you got paid. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one, Pim. I think um, what we're seeing among our advisor group is, you know, the, the older clients, I think, are very comfortable, um, you know, in both the commission and a fee world. A lot of them grew up with commissions, you know, sort of came out of that era where there was still stockbrokers, you know, where, the, where there was... Right, you called, you made a trade, and then exactly. you got your slip, and you realized that you paid it. You know, you paid the exactly. commission. You know, you, pay, you paid for the transaction. So, so they're very comfortable with that. I think um, as, as you move into the younger generation, they, you know, they just consume services differently, right? So to them, they've grown up in a world where, you know, to them, commission is just, they have no reference point for that. They don't pay commissions. Um, so, so that's where, particularly as we think about next-gen clients, uh, a lot of our advisors are adjusting their fee schedule for those folks charging things like, you know, recurring financial planning fees that could be on a monthly basis, that could be on a quarterly basis. Like a subscription. Like a subscription fee. That, that's how they, you know, these folks like to consume services, exactly. I have to wonder if there is more transparency and given the fact that fees have been compressed across the board, at what point will clients just say, I want it to be lower 
And if you don't lower it, I'm going to go elsewhere. Or I'm going to go to a robo-advisory robo yeah. and I'll make it work myself. I think you're seeing that now. I, I think, um, you know, clients are asking, they're better educated and they're asking hard questions around fees that probably 10 years ago they weren't. Now, for us, as we think about, you know, our advisor's sustainability, um, I think as long as you're providing far more than just investment management, it gives you a nice moat, if you will, protection from like a robo-advisor that's primarily focused on investment management. So most of our advisors do play in the comprehensive financial planning space. So investment management is just a small part of what they get paid for. Insurance products, annuity products, they all come with their own fee schedules based on the products that may be sold. Do you see that that is going to be an area that is going to change over the next couple of years? I do. Um, I think, you know, the insurance industry maybe hasn't been on the leading edge of this movement from commissions to advisory fees, but I think we're starting to see signs that they're going to move that direction. Uh, some of the major uh, VA carriers now have moved aggressively variable into annuity. The, variable annuities have moved aggressively into uh, advisory-based contracts. Um, I was just talking today with one of our insurance partners, Ash, Ash Brokerage, um, and they were talking about the evolution among some of their insurance partners that are getting more into the fee um, advisory-based insurance products uh, to support you know advisors who who can't receive commissions. Um, who've made that move in their affiliation model that they're 100% fee. So I think the evolution's going to continue and we're going to get a lot better products from it. It's funny, as you were talking and you were saying they need to provide something more than just investment advice. Pim, based on some of the conversations that we've had here uh, over the past two days, it seems like being someone's family therapist is part of it because you have to talk about what their life goals are, what they envision for themselves when they're older, how their relationship is, how they would like the world to be. Is that accurate? <laughs> uh, that is 100% accurate. And, uh, you know, we, we think about what our advisors do and, and all the services they deliver and all the conversations they have. And if you brought 10 of them over here, I bet you they'd tell you they spend less than 10% of their time talking about investments with their clients. Um, it, it's really, you know, it's not what most clients want to focus on. Um, they, you know, they, they, they want to know, do I have enough money to retire? You know, am, am I going to be able to take the trip? And I, am I going to be able to fund my grandchildren's education? Um, so it, it, the, the investments, you know, are important. And certainly from the advisor's perspective, they do pay the bills to some extent. Um, but, but I don't think it's, you know, always the, the top priority for clients. Fiduciary rules. Uh, that was a big topic last year. It's less so this year. Do you believe that many firms are going to just adopt fiduciary rules standards because it's good business? I think we're in a wait and see right now, you know. Um, certainly the DOL fiduciary rule um, was a wake-up call, I think, for a lot of firms to sort of look at their business and say, are we future-proofed? Are we in a position that, you know, we can comply with this? Um, now, everybody got a reprieve from that. Uh, that may prove to be temporary, right? The, the SEC is out now with the best interest proposal. Uh, we've heard from um, the DOL that they may take take another run at some regulation here. Yeah. Um, so our advisors, I mean, 80% of our business is already fiduciary. So, so our advisors are very comfortable with that. Ultimately, if it goes that direction, we'll be just fine. 
Greg Gore, thank you so much for being with us. Greg Gore is Senior Vice President of Wealth Management at Commonwealth Financial Network, normally in Boston, but right now in Austin, Texas. Definitely one thing that is shaking at least the energy stocks in the S&P 500 and beyond is the ongoing decline in oil and the 10-day losing streak uh, is setting it up for possibly the worst route on record. The 10-day loss has been the biggest since November 2016, and that was when there was basically a freefall going on uh, in the price of oil. So it's raising a lot of questions uh, here, given the fact that we have entered a bear market. Now to talk a little bit more about this, Julian Lee, Bloomberg Oil Strategist, uh, joining us. Julian, can you give us a sense of why? What is the main driver behind the oil price declines recently? I think there's a number of things going on. Um, we are seeing that uh, forecasts of demand growth are being revised downwards uh, by all of the major agencies. But I think the, the bigger thing is, is really a supply issue. Uh, the U.S. government has uh, raised uh, its assessment of how much oil the United States is producing. Uh, both the most recent weekly and the most recent monthly data show that production is growing at a rate of 2 million barrels a day uh, year on year. That is a staggering amount of oil. I mean, that is adding uh, as much oil as, as is produced by Nigeria and Gabon, two OPEC members, in the space of a single year. Uh, that, I think, has really spooked markets. And there's more shale to come. Julian, uh, if you take a look at the price of crude on the NYMEX, since the beginning of October, the price has fallen more than 20%. If this was a stock market indicator, people would be jumping out of windows. They would be seeing their stock portfolios lower by a fifth. Is there a rebound that will happen? There may be a temporary rebound. I mean, we are um, moving towards uh, a period of, of much stronger seasonal demand. I mean, if you look uh, at one indicator, if you look at um, U.S. Uh, refinery runs, the amount of crude oil processed in U.S. refineries, it's just coming to the end of what is typically a seasonal low point, And the amount of oil being processed will pick up over... Uh, the period to the end of the year by as much as one and a half million barrels a day. That's going to give a, a short-term boost to uh, the, the demand for crude oil. Um, and that might provide a, a bit of relief for a while. Um, but I think eyes are going to be on, on OPEC and Russia, uh, the group of countries that said they would cut output. They uh, are meeting on Sunday. Uh, this is not a policy-making meeting. It's a uh, um, a meeting to sort of assess how their current agreement is going. But it will set the tone, I think, for their discussions over the coming uh, coming weeks. Is there a price point, Julian, at which uh, basically people start to go back to fossil fuels, go back to using oil uh, that stymies the development of alternative energy sources? In other words, that's good for the oil industry long term. In other words, $30 a barrel, it would be actually for the long term probably pretty good for the for the oil industry, no? It would certainly be good from a demand point of view. I think the problem with $30 a barrel oil is that uh, that really starts biting into investment in future production. And we saw that uh, when oil prices fell, um, when they were getting down to those sort of levels in 2015, 2016, uh, investment in new projects just dried up. 
Um, and we're still, I think, seeing the tail end of that now. What is, you know, what everybody, I think, agrees is that we need some sort of stability around a price that uh, doesn't choke off demand too quickly, but also is high enough to allow the industry to continue to invest. Uh, what that level is, is, is the thing that nobody can agree on. Um, when oil prices were $30 a barrel, OPEC said it was round about 50. When it got to 50, they were talking, well, maybe it's round about 70. Uh, when it got to 70, well, maybe the target was 80. So, you know, this is a, a very much a movable feast. All right, it's a movable feast, but the feast is sometimes stuck in the ground. Reserve values... They are used for collateral purposes if you happen to be borrowing money, which many exploration companies in the shale patch actually do. They've taken on a lot of debt. When do they have to revise those assumptions for how much that oil, that fossil fuel is in the ground, how much it's going to be worth? Well, I I mean, most of these companies are um, looking at, at sort of revising the estimates of, of their break-even uh, prices and the value of oil in the ground on a uh, usually on a six-monthly basis. So the next one is is probably coming up towards the end of this year. Uh, but at seventy dollars a barrel, uh, sixty dollars a barrel for WTI. I sort of work in a Brent world, being in Europe. But you know, sixty dollars WTI. Most of these companies producing in the shale patch have probably cut their break-evens to round about thirty. $35 a barrel. So from that point of view, I think they're still fairly comfortable. The people who are going to be suffering as prices fall, if they continue to do so, are the people who are looking at investing in very big, expensive, yeah. long-term projects. And, and that's where the investment has really dried up. Julian Lee, thank you so much for being with us. Definitely oil in the spotlight today, uh, and your perspective is gratefully, really insightful. Jeffrey, uh, Julian Lee is Bloomberg Oil Strategist uh, coming to us. We are currently in Austin, Texas. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with my co-host and colleague, Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. Now we're going to talk a little bit about financial literacy, financial education. And joining us now to help us do this is Maggie Jondro. Uh, Maggie is the president and owner of Jondro Wealth Management based in Farmington, Connecticut. Maggie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Just by way of introduction, I just want to mention that uh, not only do you have a BA in economics uh, from Providence College, but also an MA, a Master of Science rather, from the London School of Economics. You've taken your educational perspective and you've decided to turn it into a trivia game having <laughs> to do with financial information. Tell us about your, new, your, your trivia game. Sure, absolutely. So um, I actually joined my partner, Lori, who's been in the business for over 30 years. And a goal of mine was to reach out to the next generation of investors. And everyone's done the sit-down seminars where you have the steak dinner and you know, maybe you leave with, with a prospect, maybe you don't. Um, and not necessarily everyone gets a lot out of it. So I thought, how can we make this for the next gen? And um, we started doing them at more interesting places like breweries, for instance. And uh, we would have a trivia game, which included your typical trivia questions, but then also financial ones. And at the end of every round, I would give some financial advice. So anything from basic insurances to 401k plans and your match uh, to, of course, student loans. Um, And they've been wildly successful to the point that 
some corporations have started asking me to bring them in in-house. So Maggie, you've worked at a lot of Wall Street uh, banks from Barclays and, and JP Morgan, uh, most prominently among them. I'm wondering, are millennials really different from anybody else? And are, are they, is it really a group that can be isolated with a characterization when it comes to investing? Sure. Um, I think a little bit yes and a little bit no. I mean, in the end, everybody wants to just have a good life, right? And however they define that. But I think uh, one place specifically that millennials are different than boomers is that they do believe in social uh, socially responsible investing. In fact, I believe 66% of millennials want that, that social piece and boomers about half. Um, so often when I am working with millennials, I have uh, clients asking me to invest in, of course, clean energy. Um, they want to invest in companies with a lot of women on the board. They want to invest in bettering the water supply. So that's a major difference, I would say. And then the second one, of course, is the student loan debt. Yeah. I think we have to deal with that a lot more. The use of technology in order to stay connected with your uh, clients, with your customers, how has that changed your ability to actually run the business, but also to give that kind of advice on a continuous basis? Because people are much more mobile today. Absolutely. So while I'm headquartered in Connecticut, I spend quite a bit of time in New York as well. Um, and I have clients there. So when I'm in Connecticut, we Skype, we have uh, used FaceTime before. In fact, I had a client that was spending a whole year in Italy and uh, she inherited money from her father and wanted it figured out before she came back. A year's a long time and we did everything over Skype. One other sort of cliche about millennials is that they're scared of the stock market because they grew up uh, at a time during a lot of turmoil in equity markets. Is that true? I would say it is, yeah. Uh, we, we have seen, of course, 2008 most recently, and then some even saw the dot-com crash. Um, but the way I've been combating that is through education. Um, so again, the trivia nights are a great example, or just having small group, uh, group events in our office where we can explain the impact of long-term investing and how even after 2008, those that stayed invested are relatively okay today. What is FR Next Gen? This is something that you put together. It's a subscription service for financial planning. Tell us about FR Next Gen. Sure. So a lot of professional millennials who would be wonderful clients don't have necessarily the AUM that a traditional... Assets uh, under management. They don't have the that's money. That's right. They don't have the money to have a financial advisor manage it. But instead, a lot of that money is tied up in their 401k. I've seen people come to me and their default in their 401k is simply a money market. So they're really not getting the benefit of that investing, but they're putting away for a 401k. And so for people like that, they can come to an advisor, pay that subscription service on a monthly basis, and we can give them advice on their 401k, how to better allocate it on student loans, on buying a home, really providing that holistic financial planning without necessarily having the assets under management. Maggie, I want to go back to something that you said, which is the student loans. That yes. That's a serious issue Absolutely. that we need to deal with. How has the uh, massive student, owned, uh, student loan debt, which is, has surpassed $1 trillion in the United States, affected family formation, retirement savings, et cetera, for millennials? Yeah, I think everyone's putting it off a little bit, uh, meaning buying a home, starting a family, not only because of student debt, but I know from speaking with clients, that is definitely a reason. Um, I think another reason though is career, right? So 
in the past, if you had a child, maybe you had to make some some decisions without, about your career, whereas now people really want to be set in their career, pay down some of that student loan debt, and then be able to start a family or buy a home. And in fact, I'm starting to see that. I get a lot more questions about home buying and 529 plans than ever before. Unfortunately, sometimes it all doesn't work out and there are divorces involved. And as someone that helps family plans, yes. those families can change in disposition over the course of years. Tell us a little bit about that part of your practice and how you specifically are able to help women who are going through those issues. Great question. So we actually are women practice, uh, not necessarily by design, but definitely enjoy that piece. And because of that, we do have a lot of women coming and seeking advice about financials. A lot of women were home caretakers and hadn't worked in many years, um, or they've never dealt with the finances before. Uh, and so when they come to us, we definitely do holistic planning. So we start with a financial plan, making sure that the budget is sound. Then maybe they're, they're likely inheriting money that they haven't had before from their spouse, right? Well, inheriting is the wrong word, but, but obtaining, right? And so what does that mean? And now retirement is no longer with somebody else. It's all alone. And what does that mean, both emotionally and financially? Uh, so th that's definitely a part of our practice we've developed. And just real quick, I'm wondering, how many people do you say that you work with? How many different clients? Sure, we have 150 households. Yeah. All right. It's really interesting to hear about how the different generations are different to try to extrapolate out into what we're seeing in markets and how that's reflected. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for uh, having me. Really interesting. Maggie Jondro, president and owner of Jondro Wealth Management in Farmington, uh, Connecticut, but obviously not today. She is here in Austin, Texas uh, at this conference, uh, the Commonwealth Conference that we have been at. Uh, so we are looking right now at markets that are in the red. Perhaps this is just another bout of concerns about overvaluation. The NASDAQ leading the way down 1.4% decline. Uh, S&P 500 uh, down a little a little bit less than nine-tenths of one percent. In the bond market, you can see yields actually coming down across the board despite some speculation that the deficit is only going to increase and the Fed is on pace to raise rates. Coming up, we're going to take a look at emerging markets. What does the Fed's path of rate hikes mean for them? I'm Lisa Bromwitz with Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.